0: Well, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This morning, we're coming back to our study of Philippians 2, and we're going to be picking up in verse 17. And what we're going to be looking at in verses 17 through 30 is we're going to see three men who have modeled for us how we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul tells the Philippians, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he continues on and he emphasizes unity within the body of Christ. That the church is to have unity To be unified, and he says, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire for the church is that the church would be unified as they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he goes on in chapter 2 in verse 3. And he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Then in verses 5 through 11, he gave us the perfect model of this. The perfect example of what it means to humble yourself and consider others as more important than yourselves. That is where Paul gave us the Christ hymn. What we call the Christ Christim. And he tells us all about Christ and his humility and coming from the throne of God in heaven to earth to go to a cross to die for sinners like you and I. Then he tells us in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To work out what God has worked in us. And as these Philippians are working out their salvation, they are to do it all without grumbling or disputing. Especially as they live their lives as a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so if we were to take Paul's commands that he gives to the church at Philippi, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1 and running all the way down through verse 16 of chapter 2, we could sum it up with something like this. Here's what Paul's telling the Philippian church. Be a humble, unified church, working out the salvation that God has worked in you, and do it without grumbling or disputing as you shine as lights in a dark world. That's essentially what Paul is telling the Philippian church. But now as we come to verse 17, Paul is going to give us three examples of men who are living their lives in this manner. In the way that he's just commanded us to live. Who were those three men? First, himself. Second, Timothy. And then third, Epaphroditus. Three men who are models for us, examples for us of what it means to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. These three men are humble men who are working out their salvation and they are doing it all without grumbling. And so let me read our passage for us here this morning. Two verses beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2. Follow along as I read these verses for us. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, in our modern day, with the internet and social media, there's a lot of false teachers out there. A lot of false teachers who have promoted themselves in such a way that they are famous, well-known, even amongst us as believers. We know who these false teachers are. If you think about it, a hundred years ago, it would have been a lot harder for them to become famous and influential because they didn't have... Social media and the internet. But with the rise of social media, it has become easier for these false teachers to promote themselves. These false teachers, they stand in pulpits and they have great influence upon those who follow them. Thousands of people who flock to them and hang on every word that they say. And what happens is these followers then begin to model their lives after these false teachers. And people begin then to care about the things that these false teachers care about. What is it that these false teachers care about? They care about self, they care about money and power and fame. That is what false teachers are all about. Self, money, power, and fame. And really what these false teachers do is they model themselves after each other. If you think about it, they all look alike. They all sound alike. They're all doing the same gimmicks. It's the same thing. They just pick it up from one another. Because they know that, that is what is going to get them the money and the power and the fame. But as you look at the lives of these false teachers, they are the exact opposite of what we see modeled for us by the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And false teachers, you see pride and self-promotion. But in Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, we're going to see humility and sacrificial service. And these three men will be for us a model of what it means to serve the Lord together with one spirit, one mind, all striving together for the faith of the gospel. They'll model for us what it means to humbly consider others more important than yourselves. They'll model for us what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, working out what God has worked in you. They'll model for us what it looks like to do all things without grumbling or disputing as they sacrificially give of themselves for the work of the Lord. And they'll model for us what it means to live as lights who are holding fast the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And as we look at these three men over the next couple weeks, we're going to see how Paul is a model of humble sacrifice. Paul is a model of humble sacrifice. We'll see Timothy as a model of humble sympathy, and then we're going to see Epaphroditus as a model of humble service. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul. Paul, who is a model of humble sacrifice. He was a man who was willing to sacrifice it all to serve the Lord in whatever manner the Lord wanted to use him. And Paul, as an apostle and a pastor and a missionary, he had great care and concern for the churches that he ministered to. He loved these churches. He cared for these churches and he had great concern for them. In fact, if you remember back up in verse 16, notice what Paul says there. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. You see, Paul, like any true minister of the gospel, wanted to see fruit from his labors. He wants to see fruit in the church For his labors, the hard work that he had done as a minister of the gospel. He worked hard as a minister of the gospel. And just like anyone would want to see, he wanted to see a good return from all of his efforts. From all of the work that he had done to serve the church. But this was not so that he could boast in himself and pat himself on the back for all the things that he had done. But it was so that he could rejoice at what Christ had done through him as he was just a faithful servant of Christ. In fact, if you remember the lists of Paul's hardships in 2 Corinthians 11, you remember what Paul said at the end of? Of all of that in 2 Corinthians 11, of all of his hardships, let me remind you, after telling the Corinthians about his labors and imprisonments and beatings and all of the times that he came close to death, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11.28. He says, apart from such external things, these beatings, these imprisonments, all this hardship that I've gone through... Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul is a minister of the gospel and a founding father of many churches during his missionary journeys. He says, on top of all of these external hardships that I have in my life, all the things that I have gone through, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. He's concerned for the church of Christ. He had a great deal of concern for those whom he ministered to. He labored over them. And his desire was to see fruit come forth from all of his efforts and all of his labors that he had done as he served the church of Christ. Paul knew that his work would be tested And that he would be rewarded one day. He understood that. He knew that. And he wanted to get to the end and be able to rejoice in the fruit that had been produced from all of his labors. That God had done through him. When he sees that fruit of all of his labors, it is then that he will know for sure that he did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But until that time comes, Paul has a healthy fear that all of his efforts will be in vain if the church is not walking as lights that are shining in a dark world. If the church is not holding fast the gospel and holding forth the gospel and living holy and blameless lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He fears My labors will all be for nothing. And so, in a sense, what Paul is doing here is Paul is encouraging and motivating the church to live holy and blameless lives in order to prove that his labor is not in vain. But he's also showing how he ministered and labored with a healthy fear, he had a healthy fear fearing that all of his efforts would amount to nothing. In 1 Corinthians 3, he refers to this as wood, hay, and straw that will all be burned up in the end. It'll be tested by fire. And he fears that it would be burned up. Essentially, all the work that he does would be for nothing. And yet all that this does is it causes Paul to work even harder. It motivates him to work even harder. And to strive for Christ and to work out what God has worked in him. You see, Paul was a man who desired to labor and work hard for the Lord. In fact, hold your finger in Philippians 2 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists for us, writes for us the gospel, the gospel in which he preached. And then he talks about how Christ appeared to all of these people after his resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians 15:10, notice what he says there. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now at first it sounds as if Paul is boasting in himself, right? I mean, notice what he says there. I labored even more than all of them. Who's the them that he's talking about? It's the apostles. He's talking about the apostles. And he says, look, I have labored even more than all of them. He talks about James and all the apostles in verse 7 there. And in verse 5, he talks about Cephas there and the 12. That's Peter and the 12. But he says, but I have labored even more than all of them. And it sounds very prideful, right? A prideful thing. Paul, you have labored more than the apostles have? But notice how he then qualifies it at the end of the verse. He qualifies it so that everyone knows. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. This is what one commentator calls the 100-100 principle. 100-100 principle. What is that? The first 100% is my responsibility. My labors. What I am called to do. To live as a faithful servant of Christ. I have a responsibility to work hard for the Lord. That's what I've been called to do. But the second 100% is God's sovereignty and God's provision to enable us for that labor. To labor for Him. We are 100% responsible for the work that we do. And yet 100% dependent upon God's grace to enable us for the work that God has called us to do. And that's exactly what Paul knew to be true in his life. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in this verse. I worked hard. I labored more than all of them. 100%. And yet, not I. It was God's grace that was working with me. 100% God. He didn't do it by his own strength, but he did it all by God's grace that was working in him. You see, Paul understood the hardships and labor of ministry, he understood that ministry would cost him something. One commentator says, that which costs nothing amounts to nothing. Paul was such a hard worker in ministry and sacrificed so much for the people of God that he did not want to get to the end and see that it was all for nothing. He wanted to stand there next to these believers in Philippi and rejoice knowing that all of his hard work had produced fruit. Here's the fruit of my labors, the fruit of of my hardship, of all that I did to serve the church. But Paul knew that in order for that to happen, there must be, listen church, sacrifice involved. There must be sacrifice. And that's what Paul modeled for us. Paul was a, a model of humble sacrifice. In fact, turn back to Philippians 2, and let's look at Paul as the model of humble sacrifice. All of that was just introduction. We're going to now get to this passage here, and we're going to look at three parts. We're going to break this down into three parts just to help us follow along with this passage. The first part we'll call the condition of Paul's sacrifice. The condition of Paul's sacrifice. The second we'll call the communion in being a sacrifice. And then third, we'll see the confession because of sacrifice. The condition, the communion, and then the confession. So let's look first at the condition. The condition of Paul's sacrifice. Notice what he says in verse 17 but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now, in order to understand what Paul is talking about, we we have to understand how sacrifices worked back then. What was the sacrificial system like? What did it mean to come and give a sacrifice unto the Lord? Well, in Numbers 15, we read of how sacrifices were to be given. And there we read what God commands of the jews to do as they're coming to bring a sacrifice unto the lord and in this sacrifice there were really three parts to it three parts to this sacrifice first there was the animal sacrifice in which they would come and give an unblemished animal the best that they had they had to come and give an animal sacrifice Then, there was a grain offering in which they would put that on the altar. A grain offering that was given. And then finally, to finish it off, there was a drink offering. A drink offering. And this drink offering was usually made with wine that was poured on top of or right beside that burning sacrifice. So you could picture... As you go to the altar or as the priest takes your sacrifice and he goes to the altar and he lays that animal upon that altar, there it is burning. Then he takes your grain sacrifice and he puts that on top there. And then to finish it off, he comes with wine and he pours that wine over the top of that burning sacrifice there. That drink offering there is the final act then in the offering. And as he went and poured that wine upon that sacrifice, it would vaporize from the fire and it would all go up and you would get to see that vapor going up. And as it vaporized and and it went up, this symbolized the rising of the offering to God in whom it was offered to. But, What's interesting is that this offering also became a practice among pagans. The pagans essentially did the same thing. They would make an offering, and they would pour either wine or water or sometimes even olive oil on the offering, and the vaporizing of it would symbolize the offering going up to the deity that it was offered to. So the pagans would do something similar. Now, Paul here is writing to the Philippian church, right? Here in Philippians 2, he's writing to the Philippian church. And if you remember, in Philippi, there weren't a lot of Jews. How do we know that? They didn't have a what? A synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi. And so there's not a lot of Jews living in Philippi since there was no synagogue there. And so is Paul referring here to the act that God prescribed in Numbers 15? Or is he referring to the pagan ritual when he talks about this drink offering? Well, Paul being a Jew himself is most likely referring to the drink offering that God prescribed in Numbers 15 and the law of Moses. But his point is not necessarily to point them to the sacrificial system. But listen, his point here is to illustrate for them his part in living a sacrificial life. He wants them to get this picture. And so he paints this picture for them. They would understand, either as former pagans or as Jews, they would understand what was involved in the sacrifice. And he's painting a picture for them. He's essentially saying here, my life is the final act of the sacrifice. I am the drink offering. I'm the final act of that sacrifice. Now, why would he say that? Well, remember, Paul is writing in prison in Rome to the Philippians. But he doesn't know for sure whether or not he's going to make it out of prison. Right? There's there's this tension that's going on. He understands he could become a martyr and be killed by Caesar, even though he's pretty sure he's going to be released. How do we know that? Well, look down at verse 24. Notice what Paul says there in verse 24. He says, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So he says, I'm probably not going to die here in prison. I'm most likely going to be released. But he also understands that, hey, Caesar could take my life from me. I could be martyred. But he believes that he's going to be released. But even while he is in prison, notice this, Paul doesn't stop his laboring. He doesn't stop working while he is in prison. He doesn't stop laboring for the Lord while he is in prison. Nothing was going to stop Paul from serving the Lord. In fact, notice what Paul says there in verse 17 in our text here, he says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. The Greek word there is the word spendomai. And it's a present tense verb which means that he is currently and continually living his life as a drink offering even while he is in prison in Rome. I am currently locked up in chains and I am currently living my life as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Now as a present tense here with this verb What Paul means is not that his death will be a drink offering, but that his very life that he is currently living in prison is a drink offering unto the Lord. That's what Paul is telling us here. Not that his life will become a drink offering at his death, but right now as he currently is locked up to a guard in Rome in prison, he's saying, my life currently is being lived as a drink offering unto the Lord. As a sacrifice to God. Paul was essentially living out Romans 12.1 that he wrote, where he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul not only penned Romans 12, but he also lived out what he wrote. He lived his life as a sacrifice unto God. Now what's amazing here is this word spendomai, that Greek word there, to be poured out, is not only a present tense verb, but it is also in the passive voice. Simply, here's what this means. Paul is not doing the action, but the action is being done to him. Paul is not pouring his life out as a drink offering, but the action is happening to him. Someone else is pouring him out as a drink offering. Who would that be? Who would be pouring his life out? Some think that he's referring to the Roman Empire, that it's the Roman Empire who's pouring his life out, or or Caesar, since Paul is here in prison. But I don't think Paul has them in mind at all. I think what Paul is referring to here is that God is the active agent pouring him out. God is the one who is actively pouring out Paul's life. And Paul is willingly being used as a sacrifice for God in any way that God pleased. You see, Paul never saw himself as a prisoner of Rome. Never. Not once does Paul ever say, I am a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of Caesar. He doesn't ever say that. But when he refers to himself as a prisoner... You know what he always says? I'm a prisoner of who? Of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I belong to him. It is Christ who has put me here in prison. And I'm just a humble sacrifice being used in whatever way Christ wants to use me. He only wanted to be used by Christ. And if that meant that God's sovereign plan was that he was going to spend time in prison, then he's going to do it. And he'll do it for Christ. If God wanted to use him for the furtherance of the gospel, even if that meant that Paul would suffer for it, he says, God, I am a willing sacrifice. Use me as you see fit. And listen, church, even though Paul had hardships and sufferings as he lived his life as a sacrifice unto God, going through hardships and sufferings that we will never go through. Even though Paul lived his life in this way, listen, church, he never, ever grumbled. He never grumbled. What a model for us, right? As a humble sacrifice ready to be poured out by God, used by God in any way that God saw fit. And so that's the condition of Paul's sacrifice. A drink offering used by God. Let's look second at the communion. The communion and being a sacrifice. Notice what Paul says in verse 17 again. I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now, notice what he says about the Philippians here. What are they doing? They are living as a sacrifice as well. The Philippian believers are living as a sacrifice. He says, upon the sacrifice of your faith. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that he is not the only one who is living as a sacrifice for Christ. But their faith is a sacrifice as well. As one commentator says, Paul reminds them that their active expression of faith is first a sacrifice. Just as Paul called the Romans to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, Paul knows that that is what the Philippians are doing as well. They are living their lives as a sacrifice unto God. Now, here's the picture that Paul is painting for us. The Philippians, living out their life, are a sacrifice and faithful servants of God. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 29... You want to turn there, notice what Paul says, chapter 1 and verse 29, he says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. What is Paul saying here? Paul is telling the Philippians, look, I know that you are experiencing persecution as well. Just as I'm experiencing persecution, locked up in prison in Rome, I understand your persecution might look a little bit differently, but you're suffering the same persecution that I'm suffering. But what did the Philippians continue to do in the midst of their suffering and persecution? They continued to serve Christ. They continued to serve Christ. And how did they show their faithful service to Christ? Well, one way was by sending Paul a monetary gift. And they sent it with Epaphroditus. They send Epaphroditus to go and visit Paul while he's in Rome, and they send a financial gift with Epaphroditus to go and deliver to Paul so that Paul could be taken care of while he's in prison in Rome. In fact, notice what he says over in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 and verse 14. Notice what Paul says there. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my afflictions. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, that's where Philippi is located in Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But notice this in verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Notice this. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable what? Sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That was their sacrifice to give to Paul while Paul is locked up in chains in Rome. But then 2 Corinthians 8.1, just listen to what Paul says there. He says this, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Who's that? It's Philippi that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Listen to this. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave even beyond their own ability. The Philippians were givers. But not just givers, because they gave out of their own poverty. You see, they were sacrificial givers. Living their lives as a sacrifice unto God. And at the same time, their faith in Christ was leading them to suffer for him. And what Paul says back in our passage in verse 17 is that their faith is a greater sacrifice. Not just a great sacrifice, but an even greater sacrifice than his. That is why he says, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Church, I want you to notice this. I want you to get the picture of what Paul is saying here. What Paul is conveying here. And I want you to notice the humility of Paul as Paul is conveying this to the Philippian believers. Look at what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that the Philippians are the greater sacrifice. They are the greater sacrifice. His is the small sacrifice. Here's the picture. Animal sacrifice, grain offering, drink offering. Who is Paul? The drink offering. So what are they? The animal sacrifice and the grain offering. They are the greater sacrifice. He says, your life, as you are living your life in faith unto God, your sacrifice is an even greater sacrifice than mine is. Mine is simply just the one at the end, just to top it off. That's my life. But I understand all that you are going through, Philippian Church. I understand the sacrifice that you are giving to serve Christ. You are sacrificial givers. You love to serve Christ. And Paul is equating their sacrifice with the animal sacrifice and the grain offering. And he says, mine is just, just that drink offering at the end, you know. That's it. And yet we look at this and we go, but you're the great apostle Paul. You're suffering in prison for Christ. I mean, isn't your life the greater sacrifice, Paul? Think about all the things that you've done. I mean, we read your list in 2 Corinthians 11 and all the hardships that you've gone through to serve Christ, the beatings, the imprisonments, 39 lashes, going hungry. Paul, isn't your sacrifice the greater sacrifice? And he says, no, no, no. Philippian church. Yours is the greater sacrifice. I'm just the drink offering. You see, Paul was a humble man. Paul was a humble man in whom we should model our lives after. A humble sacrifice unto God. Paul considered others more important than himself. Which is exactly what he told us back in verse 3, right? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's exactly what Paul is conveying here in verse 17. You Philippian believers, you're the greater sacrifice. You're more important than I am. He lived out what he preached. He modeled that. As he saw the Philippians as a greater sacrifice than him. He's just the drink offering. And then listen. Those sacrifices. I want you to see what Paul is saying here. Those sacrifices were then used collectively to make the full and complete sacrifice. You see, without the animal sacrifice and the grain offering, you can't just come up and and give the drink offering. You have to have all of them together, right? What is Paul conveying to the Philippian church here? Unity. We're in this together. You're the animal sacrifice and the grain offering. I am just the drink offering. And together, collectively, we are a fragrant aroma unto God. Paul is showing here and conveying for us unity in the church. Communion with one another. Just as you're living as a sacrifice unto God, I'm living as a sacrifice unto God. And we do this collectively together as we serve our great God. That's exactly what Paul has been urging the Philippians to do, right? To be unified, to be of one mind, one spirit. Striving together. And Paul shows here with this picture of the sacrifice that even though he is far away in prison in Rome, they are joined together as one. They're joined together as one. And as they live their lives as a living sacrifice unto God, they do it collectively as an act of spiritual service of worship unto Christ. Just as Paul tells us in Romans 12.1. And so that's the condition and the communion. Let's look at our final point here, the confession. Confession. The confession because of sacrifice. Notice how Paul ends verse 17. Notice what he says there. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What is Paul's great confession? Knowing that he's being used as a sacrifice unto the Lord? Joy. Rejoice. That's why he even says in chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. All he could do is find joy in Christ and rejoice. He rejoices in the fact that he is being used as a sacrifice for God. And he knows that they are rejoicing over the fact that they are being used by God as well. I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Isn't that what Paul's been talking about in this letter? We talked about it at the very beginning. What is this letter all about? Joy, right? It's one of the main themes of the book of Philippians. Joy, joy, joy. And he says, look, I rejoice and I'm sharing my joy with you all because I know that you're rejoicing. What do those Philippians have to rejoice in? Well, they can rejoice knowing that God has used their financial gift to help Paul. They can rejoice knowing that God is using Epaphroditus in Rome to serve Paul. They're the ones who sent Epaphroditus to go and serve him. They can rejoice now knowing Epaphroditus is there and he is serving Paul. And they can rejoice knowing that God is answering their prayers as they've been praying for Paul. They have a lot of things to be joyful about, even though they are in the midst of persecution. They still rejoice. And Paul's desire for the Philippians is to continue to join him in his joy as well. He desires for them not to allow the circumstances to steal their joy away. Which is why he says in verse 18, notice what he says there in verse 18. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What's interesting here is that there are two words in the Greek that are imperatives or commands. Two words, rejoice and share your joy. That's actually one word in the Greek. Share your joy is one word. But both of those are commands, imperatives. Two words, rejoice is the word kairete, and share your joy is a compound word, soon kairete. Soon meaning with and kairo, joy. That is rejoice with me. What is Paul conveying here again? Unity. You rejoice, I rejoice. We rejoice together. That's what we do in the church. Rejoice with me. He wants them to rejoice in the thought that they are in this together. That they are living their lives as a sacrifice unto the Lord. He is living his life as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And therefore they can rejoice together knowing that they are being used by God. He wants them to rejoice in the fact that they are the greater sacrifice and he is the smaller sacrifice. He wants them to rejoice in the fact that they are serving the Lord in Philippi while he is serving the Lord in prison. He wants them to rejoice in the fact that they are unified in a life of sacrificial faith lived in worship to God. He doesn't want them to become disgruntled, to begin to grumble. Or to be discouraged. But what does he want them to do? To rejoice. To rejoice. Rejoice with him. Again showing the theme of unity. We all need to be filled with joy. And rejoice together. And his command to them is to continue to do this. And don't let anything stop you from rejoicing church. Don't ever let anything stop you from rejoicing in the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul modeled this joy-filled life for us. He modeled it for us. But there was someone who modeled it for him. Who was that? Jesus Christ. Back in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself. He lived a humble life. And then in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Did anything steal Christ's joy from him? Nothing did. Not even the cross. He lived his life as the ultimate sacrifice. And Christ did it with joy. Christ modeled it for Paul. Paul modeled it for the Philippians. And he wanted them to imitate the same joy that he had. In closing, someone once said Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart. When the king is in residence there. Listen, church, do you know why Paul was able to have such joy in the midst of his trials and tribulation and hardships? In the midst of the difficult circumstances in his life? He was able to have joy because he lived his life in sacrificial service to the Lord and the king was in residence in his heart. He did whatever it was that the king wanted him to do. If it meant he goes to prison, then he goes to prison joyfully. If it meant he gets persecuted and kicked out of town, he leaves town joyfully. If a man, gets treated with shame and humiliation for the name of Christ, he rejoices. He lived his life as a living sacrifice and living that way produced joy in his heart. But you might ask, how could hardship and sacrifice produce joy? Doesn't seem to go together, right? At least not in our world. Not in our culture, hardships and joy, they don't seem to mix. But it's different in God's kingdom. Because sacrifice for the Lord always produces joy in the heart of the believer. Always. You see, that's how you can tell false teachers today who don't know Christ. First, they don't have joy. And second, they aren't willing to sacrifice. Life is all about them and their comforts and their money and their popularity. But it wasn't that way with Paul. It wasn't that way with him. As John MacArthur said, ultimate sacrifice produces ultimate joy. And that's how Paul was able to live his life with so much joy. It was because he was willing to sacrifice it all for the sake of the Lord. Church, do you live your life that way? Ready and willing to sacrifice it all for the Lord? If you do, I can promise you, you will have great joy in your life. Because ultimate sacrifice produces ultimate joy. You see, too many Christians lack joy in their life today because when God calls them to do something, you know how they respond? They grumble and complain. Oh God, it's too hard. Oh God, it's it's not comfortable. Oh God, you're asking me to do what? Are you sure? Maybe there's another way, God. God. and they grumble and complain, and they miss out on the joy that they could have if they will just say, yes, Lord, use me as a humble sacrifice, all for your glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the model that we have in the life of Paul. Lord, we know that it was not because of anything that he had done. When we see his life and how he lived his life before you saved him. He was a persecutor of the church. And yet you, God, saved him. You, God, called him. You, God, met him where he was at in his sinful state. And you, God, saved him. And then you used him as a living sacrifice. And he did great things in his life. But not because he was some great man, but because you are a great God. Father, I pray that you would use us in that way that we would be a living sacrifice unto you. Father, help us to stay humble and to consider others more important than ourselves. Lord, to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you, always responding with a yes to you in whatever way you choose to use us. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that does not have the joy that we have as believers. They don't have the joy because they don't know you. Lord, we know that there is no joy apart from knowing Christ. Father, I pray that you would open their heart. Help them to understand that their sin has separated them from you, a living and holy and righteous God. I pray that they would humble themselves before you, that they would call upon you as Lord and Savior, and that you, God, would save them. Father, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith, and that they would trust in you this day, the first day of 2023, that they would remember that that is the day of salvation for them. God, may you do your work in their hearts and use them as a living sacrifice as you use all of us as a living sacrifice for your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.